Hey everyone, what's going on? Welcome to a brand new edition of the Sam Bissell Podcast on the Ambiguous Podcast Solutions. And right now we'll be bringing you the latest and greatest going on around the world of Hollywood. Hope everyone is having a wonderful Tuesday so far. Hope everyone had a wonderful weekend. Looking forward to the week ahead. A lot of stuff that I want to talk about on the podcast today. I want to be getting into the box office that happened this weekend. A huge second weekend for the Super Mario Brothers movie. So we're going to get into that and all the new releases that came alongside of it as well. I'm also going to be getting into some news regarding Superman Legacy, some new information in regards to one of the up-and-coming HBO shows that'll be debuting this summer, which now has a release date in a new trailer, and so much more. But the first thing that I do want to talk about today, and I did it last week, I've been doing the last couple of weekends, or kind of weeks leading up to the, the episodes, is of course talking about the latest episode of Succession, and this past weekend was episode four, which was titled Honeymoon States. And again, last weekend, or last week rather, I did kind of a spoiler recap for episode three, which was probably the craziest most surprising of all the episodes that have come from Succession so far. I think it's one of the most shocking episodes in HBO history, in TV, in at least the last couple of years, probably maybe the last decade. It was just an amazing episode that I think really took the show in a whole new direction. Great writing, great direction by Mark, Mark Malloy. Jesse, Jesse Armstrong was also cr- the creator of Succession. And so it's kind of crazy to think that a week later, you try to pick up those pieces. And that's exactly what Episode 4 of Succession does. It's kind of picking up the pieces of the ramifications of Episode 3 and then moving forward with the final six or so episodes now of this show and how it all kind of wraps up and sets the stage for this kind of endgame that Jesse Jesse Armstrong and his writing staff have kind of pushed this show into in these last couple of weeks remaining of season four. And I love the transition that this one had into kind of dealing with those stakes and dealing with those ramifications. And I think it was just a great setup for what the future is going to be moving forward and and where all these characters are going to be going. Excuse me. I thought when you talk about the performances, I think once again, coming off of her hit MVP performance last weekend was Sarah Snook, who I think is really kind of one of the, really the last two seasons, she's kind of been one of those big time performers that you saw in the first two seasons, she did really well, and all of a sudden she just kind of rises to the occasion, is just given so much more to do, and it just becomes this superstar on the show, and I'm hoping that people recognize her for more things down the road, because she is just an amazing, tremendous actress. Jeremy Strong, I think, also had an incredible episode as Kendall. I think he's been kind of in the background a little bit. When we've been seeing kind of the siblings, the the Roy siblings united on this front, and he's kind of been there as more of a supporting character. But this episode really kind of brings him back into the front and center of the show in a way that I think is going to be very interesting to see how his character continues forward in these next few episodes. But I think this, I think last week did a really good indication, but also this week. This past week's episode was a really strong indicator for why Jeremy Strong has an Emmy from season two of Succession and why he is as good as he is on this show. 
as Kendall Roy. I think also somebody else that we really haven't seen that much on the show in, in the last couple of years has been Hayam Abbas, who plays one of Logan's wives in, in, in this one. She is somebody who I think was really solid in the first season of Succession, but then again, she kind of fell more into the background. She kind of comes back into this into this episode and just kind of continues to put her staple on this show as Marsha, and I think she did a tremendous job in just the few scenes that she's in. She makes it worth it, and it reminds you just how good she has been on this show as well. And I think also another indicator for this episode and something that has kind of been done in the season of Succession so far, how every single episode is very much geared toward being kind of this this play or, or this act for a play and what we're kind of setting up is a potential 10-act play to wrap everything up in this show. And I know Jesse Armstrong comes from comedy. He comes from the British background, but also he very much over this entire show is, is also added in a Shakespearean element in here. And I think this season has really kind of honed in on that aspect and I feel like the way that every single episode is set up you could feel like you're not just watching it on a screen but that you could be watching this in 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 a, in, a, in a play theater or in an auditorium you're watching this kind of one act structure play out in certain kind of ways you can see where certain actors might be leaving off of certain stages and then coming into certain frames and then mentioning certain people that you only hear of and only see off screen and it feels very much like it is being drawn up as a play and knowing the kind of format that Jesse and the writers are doing for this season and that every single episode is going to be taking place during a day has that kind of element of a playwriting structure that I think is a very interesting way for this season and the series to wrap up on whereas the previous three three seasons even though they have certain Shakespeare elements entwined into the story and into the dialogue very much feels like a a bigger scale TV show and you're going to all of these different kind of places whether it's in Wales or in in, in London London or in New York or LA, you're going to all these places and you feel that. So far in season four, you're, you're feeling more of the intimacy in regards to the show than the broader elements of all these lavish extras and and, and and different areas that you're kind of going to. So I really find that to be an interesting start to this season, especially kind of picking that out four episodes in. And I think it very much comes into play this particular episode where a lot of it is very much in this one location you're not you're not even cutting away to where certain maybe characters are whether it's on a plane or on a different side of the country or the world it's very much an intimate setting this episode and i think very much you feel that come forward this episode than any of the other ones so far in season four but again overall i've been saying it the last couple weeks since the the season premiered but it's just been a great show i mean you, you want to go out with your best foot forward and you want to make sure that people are engaged and you're all about the story and I think that's one of the things that a lot of shows trip up on when they're doing their final run of episodes and I think so far Succession has done a great job of doing twists and turns that feel necessary to the story, to the characters and I think this is just a great continuation of that and again I think the writing in this one was great. I think Lauren Scafaria who is had directed a previous episode in the third season, if you know her from the movie landscape, she also did the 2019 hit film Hustlers, which I thought was a really, really good film, and she did an amazing job on there. 
So she continues to do a great job here. I think she did a great job of keeping that consistency in the show here, doing a great job of of handling all these elements within this one confined space. I think she did a, a tremendous job on that front. And then again, all the acting. I, I noted, I added in some of the highlights like Sarah Snook, Jeremy Strong, Hayama Bass, but everyone else just brings their A-plus game in this episode and into the season overall so far. I mean, you could literally make an argument that this could... This season of Succession could very well sweep the Emmys, and I think sometimes when we talk about Emmy season a little bit, usually when it comes to the final season of something, even though sometimes they live up to the expectations, it's more so the fact that the the Academy, the TV Academy usually will give a final season of a hit show that they've been awarding throughout its run the honor of kind of giving them that one last hurrah, and sometimes a show deserves it. Sometimes you could argue that maybe another show deserves that kind of of credence over others but I think when it all comes down to season four overall and again we still have a a good crop of episodes left so it could either tailspin and be really bad or it could keep this level of greatness that it's on right now and I think you could argue that not just because it's the final season of succession but the the way that they're delivering the quality of this it deserves every Emmy that it's going to get whether a nomination or a win I mean best drama I could see it winning when you go into more of the technical categories cinematography or you go into the direction of certain episodes you could see that winning the writing the acting i mean every category that you can think of in terms of drama for this show I would not mind giving it the, the the Emmy for a win. I mean, everyone is just bringing their A game on every single front, both in front of and behind the camera. And I just think it's going to dominate this Emmy season. And I think it's deservingly so. It's not just because of a final season. They are delivering on every single aspect that you would want in this show and keeping you on your, on your, your toes and just delivering just phenomenal television all the way around. So another great episode of Succession. I'm very excited to see where episode five goes. I haven't seen any future episodes, but seeing what they set up here, looking at the preview for next week, I think it's very much going to be an exciting addition to this show and maybe could wrap up certain storylines that we've been planting out through last season into this season. So it, it's all just going to be, I think, continued greatness for this show. I'm excited to see where they continue to go now that we're entering with next with this upcoming Sunday being episode five. After episode five wraps, we'll officially be into the back half of not just the season but of the entirety of succession all around so it's been great so far it's crazy to think that it's been four episodes because of everything that's been going on in just these four hours it feels like an eternity keeps passing by and even though the premiere was four weeks ago it feels like it's four years ago at this point because of all that they're cramming into this this show so far but it's all deserving all worth it and it's great to kind of keep up on this one to week to week and like i said last week and I think Succession has become must-see TV. I think it's become a show that everyone, especially after episode three, is going to be looking to watch on Sunday night to get that information so they're not spoiled the next day. And seeing the viewership for the season continue to go up and up and up. And again, it's not it's not House of the Dragon. It's not The Last of Us, but it's doing very well for itself. And like I kind of say with box office terms, if you're able to outdo your own franchise, and you're able to outdo your own episodes in viewership, then you're doing pretty well for yourself. And again, I think Succession is on a great path right now towards its final five episodes that's going to be airing right now. So what do you guys think about Season 4, Episode 4 of Succession titled Honeymoon States? Let me know what you think about it down below 
and leave your thoughts. Speaking of box office, as we transition away from the Succession recap, the first bit of movie item news that I want to get into, of course, is like I like to do at the start of every week, whether it's Monday or Tuesday, is go over the weekend box office. And even though there were a slight number of new little films that came out this weekend, that includes... The Pope Exorcist, Renfield, Suzumi, Mafia Mama, not none of them were able to defeat the superpower that is the Super Mario Brothers movie as it did come in at number one this weekend. Once again, the reigning defending box office champion for the second weekend in a row grossed $92 million this second weekend and now has $353 million at the domestic box office, $339 million internationally for a worldwide total of $692 million at the box office. And as of right now, it is very much heading towards being the first billion dollar hit of 2023. And I would not be shocked if this becomes one of the highest grossing films, not just in the post-pandemic era, but of all time. I think it definitely has the legs to go for that, and it definitely shows when it has the kind of drop that it did. Only a 36% drop from its opening weekend to its sophomore opening, or its sophomore weekend, rather, and it had an uptick of 28 theaters added to the front, and this is just a film that is just a juggernaut right now. It just is not letting up, and I think it has a multitude of reasons for that, but to go into some of the records that it continues to break, as of right now, it, it grabbed, again, $87 million, or around $92 million, rather. It is the second biggest weekend ever for an animated film. According to Fandango, it is still their top-selling film of 2023. Again, as of right now, it is headed for making over a billion dollars at the box office. And because of the success of the Super Mario Brothers movie, I think right now it is at over 44% from the box office to box office percentage from 2022 to 2023. It is over 44% in this year so far. So a lot of great stuff that the Super Mario Brothers is kind of doing for movies right now and for theater changes, kind of adding that adrenaline to theater plexes. And again, I think there's a multitude of reasons for that. I think, again, the big reason is because this is an animated film, 90 minutes, family can go and see it. And I do also think that kind of like Sonic, but on steroids a little bit, this film is very much something that is driven not for families, but for fans of the franchise, whether you're an adult, whether you're you're a young adult, a kid, Sonic, or not Sonic, but Mario Brothers and Nintendo, something that spans decades and, and, and is something that is kind of passed down from people sometimes. I mean, that is the kind of franchise that Universal and Illumination have now tapped into. And I think it's one that has kind of gone without notice for a long time. And I think they now realize the gold mine that they now have in front of them and it's paying off financially for them as well. And I also think that there's nothing else that's really gonna be coming out this weekend. And, we, and I talked about it last week as well. The, the great thing that something like a Dungeons and Dragons didn't have, which I think would have succeeded better in a frame like August, where there's nothing else coming out basically for that entire month, I think something like Dungeons and Dragons was squished in between a big property beforehand in John Wick and a big property after with the Super Mario Brothers movie. With Mario, they don't have to worry about that because really... All due respect to the films coming out at the for the rest of April, there's nothing on the level of Mario until Guardians of the Galaxy kicks off the summer movie season on May 5th. 
for ba so for basically a full month, Mario has this the, the has the the runway set for itself to just absolutely crush and dominate and be the big universal four quadrant film that people might want to go see and be that film and and not have any kind of competition whatsoever. So now Universal has a little less than a month now, but basically enough time to recuperate as much as they possibly can for any competition comes into play. It's not dealing with what March dealt with, where you have all these big films coming out and then weekend after weekend after weekend, even though it might be a different genre, different demographic that it might be appealing to, you're still going to have to compete with theaters, with premium level format screens. Again, Mario doesn't have to deal with any of that. It's going to keep a lot of its IMAX screens, a lot of its Dolby screens. It's going to be at 3D screens. It's going to be able to retain all of those before Guardians of the Galaxy will take all of that away when it comes out on May 5th. So I think, again, this film, I would not be shocked if by the end of this weekend, meaning Saturday, Sunday, this film crosses over a billion dollars at the box office. It's well over $700 million as of today on Tuesday, but... At the end of the weekend, I think it'll hit 1.1 over over $1 billion, and I wouldn't be surprised by the end of its run if it almost crosses. I don't know if it'll get there, but it could very well, very well scratch the surface of $2 billion at the box office. So we'll see what it's able to do, but this is just, it's a tremendous run for the Super Mario Brothers movie. It's the kind of film that I think needed the injection of screens for theaters right now. And I think so far this run between March and April with these movies, John Wick, Scream 6, Creed 3, even Dungeons and Dragons to an extent, to have these films file in week after week after week is a good jolt that the theater chains and exhib exhibitioners needed this particular moment in time. And I think it'll help them as this film is able to keep that momentum going forward for the next couple weeks weekends until the summer movie season kicks in. And then basically like March, for the most part, there'll be a big budget film coming out almost every week or two during the summer movie season. So I think this is a really great continuation for the Super Mario Brothers movie, and it's not going to stop here. It's just going to keep gaining that money, and I think a new super franchise is born over at Illumination right now. And even though Pixar, I think, is still the standard when it comes to animation and the quality, you can't argue right now that with this film, even with Minions, The Rise of Gru last year, which was a huge moneymaker for Universal Illumination in 2022, that the more financially successful animation company right now is Illumination at this point. You can very well make that argument. Quality, I still give it to Pixar, but when it comes to the things that studios look at the most right now, it is raking in that money, and Pixar just isn't doing it at this particular moment in time. Do I think they could get back to that? We'll see how Elemental does in June of this year. But again, Illumination and Nintendo, great partnership. They tapped into a gold mine with this franchise. And I think we're going to see more of them moving down the pipeline in the next few years to come. Coming out in number two this weekend is one of the newcomers. And it isn't Renfield. It isn't Mafia Mama. It is actually the new Russell Crowe Russell Crow horror religion film, The Pope. Pope's Exorcist, which grossed $9 million at the box office. 
It has an international tally of $27 million at the box office for a worldwide total of 60 or 36 rather million dollars at the box office. And I think for this kind of a film, that is actually a very good start for this film. And again, horror horror can do damage. It's a very untapped market that I think more studios are now tapping into, especially coming off of COVID and figuring out what genre or what films audiences will go to. And so far over the last couple of years, horror has been a sustained level of consistent success for studios. And I think the Pope's Exorcist continue to showcase that. You also have somebody who is a legendary star, a big name, and Russell Crowe doing a film like this that you usually don't really kind of see him do, but he's doing it. And I think the reviews have been kind of fair so far. And I think it's showing that, again, horror can do well, and it's going to be doing well, and it showcased itself coming in number two at the box office. Then coming in at number three this weekend was John Wick Chapter 4, which grossed an additional $8 million at the box office. It has now made $160 million at the domestic box office. It has also made $189 million at the international box office for a worldwide total of $349 million at the box office, which again, for a John Wick film is absolutely incredible to see. And with that tally that it's made of $349 million at the box office, it is now officially the highest grossing film worldwide in the John Wick universe. And again, even though John Wick Chapter 3 made around $329 million worldwide, it just shows that this film continues to have an increase year over year or film over film, really. And again, it's just, it's just evidence of how unprecedented this franchise is and it doesn't need to make a billion dollars but for a a a action non-ip kind of driven franchise like this that started out as that where it was almost released on vod to streaming basically or on demand but it made enough money built enough cult following that they said and make a chapter two which outperformed the first film a chapter three which outperformed the second film and now a chapter four which is as of right now worldwide outproducing the third film and it's usually when you get to this kind of stage in a franchise that you might think is it gonna kind of tire itself out are people gonna be bored by it and each and every film they still continue to outdo themselves with each each and every installment in terms of the action sequences and all the crazy stunts that they do and so this franchise is is not wobbling at any point so it's increasing with the quality of each film and a lot of that has to do with the increased quality in production in the box office of each film and and it showcases to Lionsgate and I know why that they don't want to let this franchise go is that it is one that it just continues to bring in increased profit every single moment in time and I can understand why they want all the these John Wick spinoffs, whether it's a show or a movie, or they want more John Wick chapters with Keanu and Chad Stahelski back in in the in the directing and acting chair. So I can understand it, and I think John Wick Chapter Four just continues to showcase that people do like this franchise. It's holding itself well against some of this other competition in theaters right now, and I wouldn't be shocked if we continue to see some success gain for John Wick Chapter Four in the weeks to come. Moving on to the number four spot of the box office this past weekend, 
it was probably the, the the biggest no newcomer of this weekend of of new batches of films coming out, and that is the the Nick Cage Nicholas Holt led Dracula film Renfield, which is about Dracula's assistant Renfield, played by Nicholas Holt, and that was a film that was done by Universal, and it grossed eight million dollars at the box office. It has an international total of two million dollars for a worldwide total of ten million dollars at the box office, and even though this film has a star and a legend like Nick Cage and an iconic role of Count Dracula, it doesn't seem like it was able to pull enough to do well for itself at the box office. And this is one where I actually didn't really hear a whole lot of a buzz until really the week of release where it made a big push. I wasn't really kind of hearing a lot of things, didn't really see a lot of ads. I saw the trailer a bunch in movie theaters when I went to go see movies on the big screen, but anything else on TV, social media. I didn't really get a whole big vibe from the film. I've heard it's got mixed reviews right now. It has around a B minus on cinema score. So again, I think for people that are interested in seeing this, I think they saw it this past weekend. Would not be shocked if it's an, if in its second weekend upcoming that it takes a huge nosedive and probably falls within the bottom half of the top 10 this weekend. Although again, there's not a whole lot that's coming out. This weekend has another kind of mixed batch of films, not really one that that stands out over the other, but I wouldn't be surprised if this film probably tumbles down a few spots out of the top half of the top 10 into the into the bottom five of the overall 10, whether that be from six to eight. I think that's where the range for this film could go in its second weekend. Then moving on to number five on the weekend, which is the Amazon-led film Air, which of course directed by Ben Affleck, starring Matt Damon in an A-list cast as well. It grossed an additional $7.8 million at the box office and now has $33 million domestically, $21 million internationally for a worldwide total of $54 million. Now, I would say that's not bad that's good and i think when you look at the overall picture for this movie it is actually a good indicator for the money that it is getting it only dipped from three to five only a 45 percent drop which is not half bad for a film like this the only issue and i kind of said this last week that even though it was a good opening weekend for air and it overperformed expectations the problem was that when I saw the budget for the movie without taking into account the probably big promotional push that Amazon put on this film, without that push, it came in at around 70 to $90 million for the budget, which I actually thought was a little bit higher than I thought it would be for a mid-level budget film like this. Again, I thought maybe max would probably be $50 million, but more I thought in the eight in the range of 30 to $40 million, probably at a minimum that this film would have been made for on a budget, but it was a high enough budget that I don't know if this film's going to be able to recoup its money, but I don't think that's the story you take out of this film. I think you count it as a win for the most part because of what Amazon is trying to do with this film and the kind of new mindset that a company like Apple or a, cam- a company like Amazon and Apple of what they're trying to do where they're going to be exploring more of the theatrical window. I think realizing that for business sake, that it's probably not smart to be putting a film, a big budget film like an air, or let's say what they're going to, what Apple's going to be doing with killers of the flower moon, or that has a high budget quality that you don't want to just put that on, 
on a streaming service right away. You want to put it on the big screen, and then that's how you kind of build out from there. You build from the inside with the movie, with the theatrical exhibition, and then people can watch the film on streaming when it's been made available to them and kind of make it another kind of pay window for in terms of the kind of structure that you have in place when it comes to the theater, the theatrical experience being the primary point right now. And so I think for air, that's more of the goal. So if it does okay and it's but it still loses a little money, they might be able to recuperate some of that for people that might be waiting to watch it on Amazon when it comes to air or same thing if if Killers of the Flower Moon does the same thing where it does okay in theaters but you have enough press behind in the film that when you put it on Apple you might get more eyeballs behind it as well for people that are waiting for it so I think for a a film like air that's the route that it's going to take and I think it's going to be better for the film overall and the fact that it's going to perform really well on on Amazon and it still was able to make some money again maybe not enough to invest into a film like this in terms of making your money back but i think that's something that they're hoping the streaming service is able to do for them instead of going to theaters it's just a great promotional stop for them before it goes onto Amazon Prime Video when it comes to to air but still it's good to see a film like this have some kind of success people wanted to go see it the good press of this film is getting just on its own own the the great Rotten Tomato scores. It's got a great cast to it, a great director behind it as well. So I'm really pulling for this one as well for air. Then coming in and the bottom half of the top 10 this weekend at number six is Dungeons and Dragons Honor Among Thieves, which made an additional seven and a half million dollars at the box office and now has made $74 million domestically, $83 million internationally for a worldwide total of $157 million. And again, unfortunately, I was kind of saying it before when talk about Super Mario Brothers. I just think that Dungeons & Dragons came in at the wrong time, the wrong place, the wrong release window. I think this film came out early summer, even maybe around Labor Day weekend of September, because there's not really a whole lot of stuff coming out in September as well. But within that corridor, I think this film could have actually really done well for itself. I don't think it would have been one of the highest grossing films of the year, but I think in order for Paramount to justify, and even E1, who shared a majority stake in producing and investing in this film, I think it would have done better for itself, recuperated some of his money, and have and make the studios confident that they can make this into a franchise, or at least greenlight another film in order to make a sequel and, and see where it goes from there and what audiences are reacting to if they really do want to see more from these characters. But unfortunately, I think because they came out in a very crowded marketplace right now. There's a lot more films that people want to see, and Dungeons & Dragons is just not one of them, which is a shame because, again, it's a fun, enjoyable film. It's just not really able to hold on to people's interest in order to see it in theaters right now, which, again, is it could it do well on VOD, in in streaming, if it's released on Paramount Plus, or whether it's, it's on cable? Maybe it does better there, but in in terms of its box office, it's it's, it's going to be a failure. It's going to be, I don't know if it'll be a bomb outright, but it's not going to be a film that makes a studio money. It's going to lose investment in that money that they put into it. And I think we might be at the end of this Dungeons & Dragons run potentially. It's unfortunate, but I just think it was wrong place, wrong time, wrong window to put this film out 
on, which is, again, a shame because I think it's a great movie. People should definitely go check it out. Then coming in at number seven this weekend was Zumi, which grossed $5 million at the box office and now has a domestic total of $5 million, an international total of $143 million, for a worldwide total of $148 million worldwide at the box office. And then to round out the top 10 this weekend with number eight, which was another newcomer in Mafia Mama, it grows a uh, a record, not a record, but it grossed a number of $2 million at the box office. It did not come out internationally, so its worldwide total is the same as, as its domestic total, which is $2 million at the box office. Coming in at number nine was Scream 6, which grossed an additional $1.4 million at the box office. It now has made $106 million domestically. Internationally, it has made $60 million for a worldwide total of $160 million at the box office. And then round out the top 10 was another newcomer called Nefarious, which grossed $1.3 million at the box office. And just like Mafia Mama, it did not come out internationally, so its domestic total is the same as its worldwide total at $1.3 million. Then one other film that I also want to highlight that made a limited screen appearance in New York and LA this past weekend, but this upcoming week will be released in more select limited theaters before making a worldwide push in the next few weeks. And that is the new Ari Aster, Joaquin Phoenix-led film, Bo is Afraid, which over the last week or so has been getting very mixed and divisive reactions, whether they're either mixed, which legitimately mixed, where some people like some of the elements and don't like some of the elements, And then we have the very negative group of people that think this is a film that is a disaster, shouldn't have been made. Then you have a very uber positive amount of people that think this film is a masterpiece. It's Ari Aster's best. So there's a good mix of people. And and I think all those mixes, all those reactions and, and, and thoughts about the film are going to drive people to go see this three-hour comedy horror film with an Academy Award winner in Joaquin Phoenix and a director who is known around the film community for delivering some very good horror films over the last couple years in both Hereditary and Midsummer. And that is exactly what it seems to have happened for Bo's Afraid in just the over 1,000 theaters that it, it has screened in so far, both in LA and New York. And with that, it actually made some history over this past weekend as Bo's Afraid made 300 $20,000 at the box office. It has earned the biggest per screen average of 2023 so far in terms of openings overall for the studio that it's a part of, which is A24. That is the best limited opening for A24. Some other records that broke since Uncut Gems, which was another A24 film, and of course brought the Safdie brothers and Adam Sandler together. That is, This Bo's Afraid is the second best limited launch since that 2009 film. It also ranks as number two in the post-pandemic world, and it is only behind the opening day limited release for 2021's Licorice Pizza, which was written, directed, by the great Paul Thomas Anderson, and that one had an $86,000 per screen average. So again, it seems like, I don't know if if this film is going to do well when it opens up to multiple theaters. I think it'll probably take a little bit of a tumble. But again, this is why studios sometimes actually have smart people within their system where they realize that you have to, some of these films need to put in limited enough theaters that in order to build that buzz, you start kind of, of feeling it a little bit. And then as each weekend comes out and it goes to more and more and more theaters, people might be more interested in checking a film out at their local theater if it is playing 
around them. And I think that is actually a smart opening for A24. And I think, is it going to be a film that maybe in a few weeks it, it hits a bunch of markets, people go see it? I don't think so, but it kind of reminds me a little bit of Walking, one of Walking Phoenix's previous roles that just came out in 2019 and the Joker now again that's a iconic comic book character or an iconic movie character really in 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 the clown prince of crime himself and Joker but I think that what that film was able to do is it created a lot of a lot of controversy a lot of talk and again it's that's a bigger character a bigger property in a way but I think people there's a big enough conversation that people want to go see it and it is one of the highest grossing films in DC one of the highest grossing R-rated films of all time if not the highest grossing R-rated film ever and I think with this film it's going to pique some people's interest to go see this film and judge for themselves what the film is all about and I'm going to certainly going to be one of those people where I've heard all these different things about the film but I want to go see it for myself and think what I want to think about the film and judge for myself overall and I'm hoping to see that later this week I wasn't able to see it over the weekend in in theaters in New York but I'm one this is one that I'm actually really excited to see and I'm happy to see a film like this do well for itself at the box office right now so those are the ones I wanted to mention real quick and also talk about the top 10 at the box office and that is the top 10 of this weekend's box office along with the addition of Bo is Afraid which is doing very good limited success in theaters right now so to go from number 10 to 1 once again Number 10 was Nefarious. Number 9 was Scream 6. Number 8 was Mafia Mafia Mama. Number 7 was Sushimi. Number 6 was Dungeons & Dragons Honor Among Thieves. Number 5 was Air. Number 4 was Renfield. Number 3 was John Wick Chapter 4. Number 2 was The Pope's Exorcist. And coming in once again at number 1 for the second weekend in a row was the Super Mario Brothers movie. What did you guys think about the top 10 this weekend at the box office? Let me know what you think down below and leave your thoughts. Now to move on to some TV news that I want to talk about on the podcast today. And it has to do with a certain HBO show that is set to come out. And now what is going to be a few months from now, specifically on June 4th, and that is going to be The Idol, which was created by Euphoria creator Sam Levinson. And it stars both The Weeknd and Lily Rose Depp, who is, of course, the daughter of Johnny Depp. And this has been a show that has been talked about, reported on, kind of highly scrutinized for I would say probably a little over a year since really the first trailer for this one kind of came out or the first look of the of the show came out which was last year and I thought for the longest time last year the film was going to come out in 2022 if not early 2023 and now we realize it's going to be mid 2023 when this when the show debuts on June 4th on HBO and this is a show that I, I've really been kind of looking forward to. I think it is one that has that kind of sleek sexiness of a euphoria and the kind of that filmmaking quality that ma- has made euphoria what it is. And of course, it makes sense when it's created by Sam Levinson. And this is also a show that has been scrutinized in ways for what it seems like it's going to be divulging. And there was this big Rolling Stone piece that came out a few weeks ago and when it kind of talked about some of the things that might have been happening behind the scenes, whether it came to certain changes to the scripts, changes to directors and creators and some of the scenes that they were doing, especially with Lily Rose Depp, but it seems like from what she has said and the, and the people working behind the scenes that refuted the story that it was consensual, that she was in, in agreement for what they were doing on, on set for this show. 
And so th- there's a lot that is going to be coming with this. And I think it's pretty big when HBO is solidifying this really as their big summer season TV show that's going to be guiding them through at least the, the big months of the summer, probably in June and July. And this it's also big in the fact that it's coming out June 4th. It's going to be a week after both the big finales for HBO's biggest shows probably to date right or some of the biggest shows to date right now which are coming to a close in both Succession and Barry so then literally the next week we're picking right back up with a big time show like this which is sure going to generate a lot of conversation and then along with the release date it also came out with a brand new trailer for this for this TV show and I've seen a bunch of trailers for this already but it seems like this one kind of felt like a brand new trailer in the sense that we're finally moving forward with this and this is coming out sooner rather than later and just like i saw the previous two two trailers this one got me excited for it as well i I like the the song choice which is kind of a rendition on a britney songs piece but I look how the weekend looks in this. I think Lily Rose Depp is going to become a superstar off of this show. I really feel like she's going to kind of make that Zendaya pop a little bit where people knew who Zendaya was, but it was really this show that A, showed the range that she has as an actor and also kind of uh, put her into a stratosphere where she's multifaceted. She can sing, she can dance, she can truly act and it has made her who she is today and I think Euphoria is a big part of that and so if, and, and she was somebody who was in certain things but again this really made her pop. I think the same thing is going to happen with, with Lily Rose Depp where she's been in some things, she's been in more kind of art house films and has done a lot more indies in recent years but she hasn't done anything big and I think this is going to be the big thing that's going to pop for her in a lot of different ways and I think it's going to make her a big star now whether that results in Emmy competition I'm not sure but I do think it's going to make her a household name maybe not as big as Zendaya's but I could see her getting a lot more roles and opportunities in TV movies lead roles that could come for her because of this show so I think this is going to be a, a big opportunity for her I think also for the weekend people will see him in a new light not just as a singer songwriter performer He'll be able to act in this. I think it's going to be big pressure to see if a guy like The Weeknd can make it on that scene as an actual actor. And and again, from what I've seen from the trailers, I buy into who he's playing, which it seems like this kind of sadistic cult-like leader that seduces and lures Lily Rose Depp's character into this kind of cult-like mindset that he has. And it's kind of this kind of forbidden love that they have with one another. And it has all these kind of cool, interesting qualities. And I'm excited to see where it's going to go for here. And... I think when it comes to seeing what the, the trailer is able to offer, what the show is able to offer, it's going to be very interesting to to see. And I do think that when the show does come out, I think it is going to be the most talked about show of the summer of 23. I think when we talk about movies and, and highlights from the past few months of the summer, this is going to be one of those shows. And I wouldn't be surprised, kind of like Euphoria or kind of like The Last of Us, it becomes this kind of water cool talk talked about show where every single Sunday night or after Sunday night going into the week we're talking about the idol and we're talking about all the craziness that's going to ensue from that show and I think very much so that HBO 
somehow they're able to do it, but they dole out these big successes, and I think this this show is going to be one of their new successes to go along with the likes of A Last of Us and so forth. When they're kind of closing the chapter on two big iconic pieces of your cornerstone that you've had over the last couple years with Barry and Succession, you in this year so far, I think you're going to have two new ones. The Last of Us was a phenomenon in the early parts of 2023, and I think in the middle part of 2023. After Succession, I think The Idol is going to be that big show that's talked about in the summer, more so than anything else. Whatever else is coming on the summer in terms of TV, I think The Idol is going to overtake those and be that kind of conversation starter that people talk about from beginning to end. And we'll see how it goes, but I like what I'm seeing so far. I also think that, again, sometimes you go for festivals and you you shoot your shot and it doesn't work and it's that's happened more so along the lines with the fall festivals. But when it comes to something like the Cannes Film Festival, I do feel feel like studios are confident enough in their products that they want to put their best foot forward in this and they know the stuff that will play really, really well at these festivals and garner a lot of critical acclaim. And I don't think HBO, Warner Brothers Discovery would put the first couple of episodes out of competition at the Cannes Film Festival if they didn't know that they had the goods to show and debut the world premiere there. So I think all that is going really well for this show and it's and it's good indicators and signs for where we're going with this. And we'll see what happens, but I like the trailer. I like the premise for this. I like the cast. And I think this is going to be another interesting Sam Levin experience. And I think he's very much a controversial producer, creator, who, again, he has very strange methods, but it's it, it's worked. And I think it's worked for Euphoria. And I think it's going to work for this show. And it's going to have its detractors, but I think it's going to become with the conversation, which is why I think it's going to be that kind of water cooler talked about show this upcoming summer. So what did you guys think about the new trailer and the new date for The Idol? Are you excited for the show? Are you not excited? What do you think about its June 4th date? Do you think I'm crazy to think that this is going to be the water cooler show of, 20, of the summer of 2023? Let me know what you think down below and leave your thoughts. And the final few things that I want to talk about on the podcast, I want to kind of go into some superhero realm a little bit. One story very much deals with the superhero stuff. The other one is kind of on a very kind of serious note. The first thing that I want to kind of start on on is the kind of not so serious note. And that has to do with Kang the Conqueror himself, Jonathan Majors. And again, doesn't really have to do so much with his character in the MCU. It has to do with more so his character in the real world. And last month it was reported that Jonathan Majors was arrested for domestic violence issues when it came to apparently being physical in in a harmful way towards his significant other. And it's been kind of quiet on that front since the initial reports came out late in March. He was arrested in New York City. There were his lawyers were kind of saying that they would have kind of a case build out and they would have all this evidence to kind of exonerate his name before going to court. They debuted a little bit of evidence, didn't go their way, and we haven't really heard a pin drop since then when it comes to anything Jonathan Majors until late last night when it was announced that two of his talent reps, not his agency, which he's rep by WME, but some of his other representatives when it comes to managing PR have dropped him. Specifically, his talent managers at Entertainment 360 have dropped him. And at the PR firm, the lead company, also apparently, according to reports from Deadline, last month initiated a break with the actor himself. And again, he's still being repped by his agency, WME, and it's also 
reported, according to Deadline, that Marvel has not had talks yet in regards to Jonathan Majors and his continued role as Kane the Conqueror in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And as we kind of know, it seems like Kane is going to have a big role to play in the future of the MCU. We know he's going to be premiering Loki Season 2, but we don't know what other projects he'd be coming into before the potential lead-up to Avengers Kang Dynasty. But all that is mute at this point because there's a bigger question kind of coming into, into play when it comes to all this stuff, and that is the future of Jonathan Majors. What is the future for this guy? Is he is this a guy who is going to have some kind of a career moving forward? Because you have to remember, before this incident, he, was, he wasn't the king of the of, of Hollywood, but he was that superstar, that budding superstar that was on the precipice of just exploding. I mean, being in the MCU, being in a major franchise film like Creed 3, which had major success in March, and then, of course, in what could have been a potential Oscar-nominated film of yours, that you get an Oscar nomination potentially with Magazine Dreams, which debuted at Sundance and was getting all this big awards early, but specifically for him early on, it could be mute at this point. And, and again, on this podcast, and, and, and I know I speak for Ambiguous Podcast Solutions as well, we don't condone domestic violence at all. Whatever, If somebody does something like that, it should be stopped at the butt and it should be handled with and there should be consequences for the, for the person that initiates that violence. And again, from all the evidence, it seems like Jonathan Majors did do something like that. And the kind of big question comes into play of what's going to happen to him is if, if he is dropped by his agency if WME drops him then that's going to be a very 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 bad look but it's it's still an awful look for him right now in the sense that two of his uh, two associations of his kind of publicity team have dropped him already and usually when it comes to things like this You'll get brands and movies and things like that that'll drop you. Studios that'll drop you. They don't want anything to do with you right now. You're too radioactive. But it's usually the the team around you will usually stick by you until it literally seems like they can't do it enough or the evidence is, is, is insurmountable that they have to drop you. And while, yes, there is evidence right now that is very damning to Jonathan Majors, it still feels like there's a wait-and-see approach of what's going to happen with this a little bit. Like, he has a court date coming out May 8th. And some of the evidence that has come out against him is not good, but it doesn't seem like people are kind of dropping him like flies right away. But it, it's very, very bad look for Jonathan Majors and the fact that both these two reps dropped him already. And again, the agency has not dropped him yet, but if the agency were to follow next and drop him, then it, that's DEFCON. If we're at DEFCON 2 right now or 3, that would just be putting it automatically to DEFCON 1 if WME were to drop him because that's basically an indication that what they have seen and what they're hearing from John and the Majors, the legal system, wherever, that it's not going to be good for him. And whatever that whatever his legal team tries to do, it's not going to be enough and that there's no future with this guy whatsoever. So the fact that these PR teams have dropped him and they're not going to rep him right now is, I think, an, uh, an early indication of some bad things that could be coming for Jonathan Majors. And again, I, so much so with, with the MCU and and what's his future like in movies, I, I don't know. I, I don't, it, it's too early to tell, I think. I think, I do believe when Deadline reports that Marvel has not had talks yet, maybe behind the scenes that behind closed, closed doors, maybe Kevin Feige is, and some of the other he, uh, heads at Marvel have maybe kind of felt it out, see where things are going, but 
I think right now it's more of a wait and see re- approach. I wouldn't be if they do drop him. I wouldn't be surprised if maybe they drop him at the end of the year, um, later in the year, because he still has something like Loki coming out, and and you're not going to probably be able to reshoot that probably. So you don't want bad press around that. But I don't know. It's it's going to be very much a wait and see approach and see what happens to him. But this is not a great sign for him. If these two if these two reps are dropping him already, then it's it's not looking good for him right now. So we'll see what happens again. He has a big core date on on March eighth or on May eighth, excuse me, in in New York City, which where he was arrested and where the incident took place. So we'll see how all that goes in the next couple of weeks. And the final thing that I want to talk about on the podcast today to kind of flip a one and end on something a little bit more positive and moving from that to the DC universe. And as of right now, James Gunn is still involved in MC right now with Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. They are getting ready for press and promo for that film and the fact that it's only at this time two, two and a half weeks away, which is kind of crazy to think about, but it is. And so he's kind of prepping to close out his chapter in the MCU and then get ready for his new chapter as the head of DC Studios and focus on kind of rebirthing the DCU as he and Peter Safran are going to be calling it in the future. And of course, one of the big things that is going to be kind of earmarking that new era is a new Superman film, which is going to be called Superman Legacy, which is going to be written and also directed by James Gunn. And he is somebody who, if you want new DC news, he's the guy to do it. And he has been very much communicating with people about all this kind of stuff on Twitter. And so we kind of continue to showcase a little bit and give an update on Superman on Twitter today, where he talked about kind of the beginning of preparation when it comes to pre-production. This is what he specifically had to say on Twitter. He said, I'm honored to be part of the legacy and what better day than Superman anniversary day to dive fully into early pre-production on Superman legacy, costumes, production design, and more now up and running. So it seems like once Guardians is done, it's going to be all full steam ahead for James Gunn in the DC universe. And I'm again, I'm excited to see where this goes. I think, of course, the next bit of information that everyone's clamoring about right now is who's going to be like, play Superman. And there's been rumors that it's going to be somebody who is younger, maybe somebody who's in his 30s. We don't know yet. And I just think that I'm very curious to see what James Gunn is going to be bringing to Superman. Because, again, when you look at James Gunn, Gunn's films, whether it's Suicide Squad or Peacemaker or the Guardians films, going in that direction with Superman, I think is going to be very interesting. And I'm very curious to see if James Gunn changes up his approach, his style a little bit to give a Superman that doesn't have that kind of James Gunn feel, but feels more like he would in a Superman comic book in a way, in in a Superman film that we've seen before. So I'm very curious, but I do trust that James Gunn has a vision. And I again, I said it before when it was announced that he was directing this. I think it's smart, not just because he's writing it and whatever he writes usually directs for the most part, but I think when you want to set the tone for the new DC universe, I think it's smart that the person who's more on the creative side of running things kind of kicks off the first major property in the first major installment of that new new universe with this film and it sets the tone for where everything else is probably going to go so i think it's a smart idea for him to take on this film and i'm excited to see the costume it's great to see that even though he's 
doing this stuff for Marvel still, and he's got all these new DC projects that he's working on, he's still, when he focuses on one project, he's able to multitask like this. And it's great to see, and I'm excited to see more updates as we get them for Superman Legacy. So what do you guys think about that in terms of the update James Gunn brought about the new Superman film? Let me know what you think down below in the comment section and leave your thoughts. But with that down and out of the way, that will do it for this edition of the Sam Bissell Podcast. Once again, everyone, thank you so much for tuning in. Be sure to check out my channel for more content. You can check me out on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Radio Public, SoundCloud, and much more. Also, make sure to tune in onto the Ambiguous Podcast Solutions and make sure to follow the other amazing shows that are on there, such as You Mad Bro, the number one source of what the internet is pissed off about on a weekly basis. Also, check out Goal Driven Professionals, Geared Toward Improving Client Relations, Return on Investment, and Customer Acquisition Costs for Independent Businesses and Services. Also, make sure to check out The Daily Grind, a weekly motivational podcast with Kelly Johnson giving you everyday tips and key takeaways on reaching your goals. Also, along the way, make sure to check out these other amazing shows on the podcast solutions, such as Wrestle Attic Radio, WrestleMania Podcast, and Midnight Showing. You can check these out and so much more on the website, ambiguouspodcastsolutions.com, also on Facebook and Twitter at Real Ambiguous. And if you want to check out Canopy Treehouse, use the coupon code AMBIGUOUS. Also, when you get a chance, make sure to follow me on social media. Find me on Twitter at Bissell Samuel. That's B-U-S-S-E-L-L-S-A-M-U-E-L. And also on Facebook at Sam Bissell. Once again, everyone, thank you so much for tuning in. And until next time, keep on screening.